Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Daniel Kamel. He's the sous chef over at Veritas, which is one of our favorite restaurants. Uh, we've even had Chef Josh Dalton on the podcast before. I think that's episode like 105 or something like that. If you go back in the feed, if you never listened to it, Daniel's been there since August, since they reopened for dine-in after COVID. COVID kind of happened in Columbus. Everything got shut down in March. Veritas basically went the entire summer until August before they reopened. They did some take-home kits too as well. They had like the holiday ones. Um, They did one for Christmas and Thanksgiving. They were also doing, you know, different supper club kind of themed menus. So the first one was Mexican, then they did Italian and French. And then they did a vegan one real quick. And then they did Nordic was the most recent one. Now they're back to just kind of cooking whatever they want to cook, doing it that way. They have a bar menu there now too as well, which you can get at the Citizens Trust uh, Cocktail Lounge upstairs. You can also get it at the bar in Veritas or the patio too outside. We had that experience. We went out uh, to the patio, had some of the bar bites too. They're all very, very tasty as expected. So it's really cool just kind of talk to somebody who's, you know, worked with Dalton for coming up on a year now, but also has been bouncing around the Columbus restaurant scene for a handful of years. You know, he worked at Wolf's Ridge. He worked at Rue for a minute, too, as well, towards the earlier part of 2020. Worked at, you know, the Hilton downtown, too, is kind of where he got experience. Yeah, so it was just kind of cool to somebody you see in the kitchen all the time whenever we go there and and to be able to kind of put a voice to the face and be able to talk to him about his experiences and where he's gone. And and he's got some different opinions on some stuff, you know, especially we get into kind of farm to table, kind of local ingredients and and stuff like that, too, as well. I think most chefs are probably, you know, we want to support local as much as we can. And Daniel's got a really interesting kind of thought process of like, yeah, you want to support local as much as you can. But if the product's shit, the product's shit. Like, why are you going to put that on your menu? It's really unique. To, you kind of get a peek behind, you know, the curtain of Veritas a little bit more. They're super competitive. They're super high level. You know, they want to be the best restaurant in Columbus. You know, they might not say that outright, but you can tell with just kind of the the whole vibe, like, that's what they're going for. Like, we want to be the best restaurant in Columbus. We want to be that place that everybody comes for their special event, whether it's an anniversary, a birthday, a family get together, whatever. That's what we want to be. And we want to serve good food and and food that speaks for itself, that we don't even have to do anything. So it's one of my favorite restaurants of not even just Columbus, just, you know, that we've been to. Everything's always, you know, delicious. We've had things here or there maybe that we haven't liked. You could just see the effort that they're putting in and they, they give a shit. And that's kind of what this whole podcast is built around is talking to people who give a shit about being in restaurants and trying to make their menu better and tinkering with dishes and pushing themselves and trying to push the boundaries of whatever city that they're in, whether it's Columbus or Vancouver or Las Vegas, what have you. So, you know, that's kind of the theme of, you know, the podcast and what it's grown into. So it was really awesome to just talk to another person that fits that mold and is part of, you know, one of our favorite restaurants. So you can follow him on Instagram at peanut butter to Paisley. He explains the Instagram handle too, as well, towards the end of the podcast, where that comes from. Also follow him on Veritas at Veritas 614. The Citizens Trust is on Instagram too, as well. 1808 American Bistro and Spec Italian Eatery up in Delaware. They're both on there. Accent Wine Shop, which is uh, also associated with all of them. That's on Instagram too as well. Should be opening soon, I would imagine. I know they were originally targeting June, so maybe there's just some probably construction delays and stuff like that. But I know they're working on construction for Spec and uh, for the the French restaurant that they're going to open. I think 
permits are kind of probably holding some stuff up, but that stuff should probably open, I would imagine, sometime in 2022. Initially, when all that news broke, it was like targeting like this fall, and that seemed pretty ambitious. And now with all the kind of delays of materials and everything, I, I think that's probably looking at more like 2022, like spring, once the weather kind of gets warmer. But it'd be awesome to have both those restaurants and see kind of where Daniel goes within that whole setup once everything kind of gets reorganized and moved downtown and, and all that stuff. And so it'll be cool to visit all that stuff too as well once it gets you know further along and they're open. Without further delay, this is my conversation with Chef Daniel Kamel, the sous chef over at Veritas. Thanks again for taking some time and coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Veritas is one of our favorite restaurants to go to, and you guys are always doing something new. So I feel like we're there pretty frequently. But, you know, I know you've just recently kind of been there for coming up, I think, probably about a year, which uh, we'll get to. Like with most chefs working in Columbus, there's not a whole lot of information on most everyone. There's a few articles about some of the bigger names here and there, but even, you know, somebody like, Dalton only has, I think, a, a couple articles. So we'll start kind of where we start with everybody. I mean, how did you kind of get started cooking? Was it something that you were always into as a kid or just kind of fell into? Yeah, it was one of those things where my mom and grandmother, both really good cooks. I've always been gravitating towards like working with my hands and like making things. Like when I was a kid, it was like Legos, you know, things like that. I would just see them you know, the kitchen is kind of like that gathering place for the family. Like everything revolves around the kitchen. You have an event like a birthday, like everyone's in the kitchen getting food ready for dinner and that kind of thing. So I was always just like watching them. And I just thought it was cool, you know, taking something and, you know, turning it into something else. And then, you know, obviously eating it, it was tastes good. So I was like, yeah, I, I like doing this. That's definitely how it started. Was there a certain type of cuisine like your mom and your grandma would cook? Was it like Italian or were they just kind of fakers? Or? My mom is Romanian. I'm first generation. So she came over when she was like 15 or 16. So like my mom's never made a chocolate chip cookie before, but like her go-to would be like macarons. She would make them with walnut flour instead of almond flour, just because I guess uh, walnuts are... Uh, very prevalent in, uh, you know, Eastern Europe and that kind of thing. The, the food was always that. There was obviously a lot of spaghetti and meatballs is easy to make for anyone. So we would have stuff like that. But there was definitely a lot of things like paprikash and that Eastern European, a lot of sour cream, uh, that kind of stuff. Have you ever had the chance to go over to Romania to like visit? Uh, yeah, I went with her and my little brother. I think when I was in fifth or sixth grade and we kind of went for, I think we were out of school for Christmas and like New Year. So we were there for, I think, two or three weeks. I can't remember exactly, but uh, it was cool. It was weird because I liked all the food that I had from them here. And then when I got there, I thought everything was disgusting. So she gave me a... Um, like a English to Romanian dictionary. She's like, if you want something, you have to, you know, learn how to ask for it. And uh, I think at least 65% of the time I was there because I didn't like anything. I was just eating bread and mustard, which is really weird. I love mustard and bread's great. So yeah, I would just go to someone's house and I'm like, oh, what's for dinner? And it was like, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, just, I'll just take some bread and mustard. So, but it was cool. Was that the only time that you've been to Romania? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's the first and only time overseas. 
now being older, is it someplace that you'd be more interested in going back to, to kind of like explore the culinary food? Like your palace changed since you were a kid and everything? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would, I would love to go back. It's weird. Cause at this point I am too like far removed from like any family that I have over there. So I like, there's people I know it's like three people. I don't know. I wouldn't really like make that my first destination just cause I, you know, I don't think I have that connection with it, but I would, uh, if I was in Europe, like if I was traveling all over Europe, I would 100% go and, you know, see what kind of stuff they have. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I did recently find a chef on Instagram who is doing some pretty cool stuff in some city over there that I'll message it to you later. I don't think Romania, I mean, I don't think they are part of the Michelin Guide or anything yet, as far as I know. Because, I mean, they just got like Croatia like a couple years ago and there's only like 10 restaurants or something like that in Croatia, so... Yeah, yeah, there. It's a relatively uh, poor country, I guess. So it makes sense that they wouldn't have it over there. I mean, Michelin's only in like what three, four states in the U.S. So yeah, California, Chicago, D.C., New York. It's weird when you like do some research on it. Like all the tourist industries have to kind of pony up a few hundred grand to even get them to like come. That's how like a lot of the countries over in Asia, like Singapore and stuff, they basically ponied up like half a million bucks. They're like, yeah, we want to, we want a Michelin guide here. It's all part of like the tourist system. It's pretty interesting if you ever go down that rabbit hole. Well, it makes sense how they afford to do all the ratings then. I've always wondered that how, like who pays for these people to go eat at all these restaurants, you know, multiple times a year to be like, yep, this one deserves three stars. So I don't know if it's still the same, but I know it used to be like before the pandemic, the inspectors that they call them, they would go to a restaurant and they would basically like pay themselves and then expense it. Every once in a while, they'll do little almost like hiring posts and you have to have like a journalism degree and and stuff like this. And then they run everybody through almost like a tasting school to make sure that they can identify like basic, you know, flavors and stuff like this. But yeah, it's I guess it's like a lot of travel, obviously, as well. But you kind of get assigned like an area. It sounds like they could also move you to a different area to cover at any given point if they choose to kind of thing. It's pretty interesting if you get some free time to kind of look in all that stuff. But the rating system, I know, basically like for somebody to be three stars, it has to be every inspector that visited over a certain time period, whether it's like a year or nine months or whatever, has to come to the conclusion that, like, that that's worth three stars. If they only get, if one person's like, no, it's only two, then they're stuck at two. Like Dominique Crenn, for example, she was two stars for years and years and years. And it's basically because one inspector was like, no, it's not three stars. And it would always keep her in like this two star rating that sucks i'd be so pissed can you imagine Uh, yeah i mean that would definitely i don't know i mean there's a lot of restaurant owners and chefs that say like oh don't you know it's just an honor and don't care but i think that's just kind of like the pr line like i wonder how much like they actually do care about the awards and recognition you have to care it doesn't it's like do you want to drive a rav4 or do you want to drive a ferrari you know what i mean you have to care to some level that because at the end of the day, it's yeah, it's still marketing for you, but you also have to have some competitive like streak in you to get to the point that you're at. You know, how did you kind of get started in restaurants? It was your first job like in a restaurant, like a dishwasher or something like that just in high school or my first job ever was at a Quiznos in uh, South Jersey. I'm I'm from Philly, so and I went from Philly. I moved around a lot when I was younger. My parents split up, 
the part of South Jersey I was in is like the equivalent of downtown Columbus to Polaris as far as like Philly and there. So it's like, to me, it's all the same at this point. But yeah, my first job ever was at a Quiznos when I was like 15 or 15 and a half because they had like some law that, you know, like a miner can't work with any like sharp machinery. Like we had like a slicer and that kind of thing. I could only work a certain amount of hours, but I did that for like a year. Um, And then prior to that, my mom actually had a little kind of like seafood restaurant in Philly that was kind of like a market, but also like a carryout thing. So you could go in there and you could get just like fish and chips, or you could buy an entire bushel of like blue crab raw or cooked. You know what I mean? So it was definitely... When I saw that, I was just like, yeah, this is, you know, what I want to do. Cause I just like liked helping, you know, she's like, here, you know, clean the muscles. And I was like eight years old. Okay. So you did get to work there. Oh, not, I mean, not legally. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just like I was there, you know, and not all the time. It was just like one of those things where I was there and she's just like, well, you're going to do something stupid if I don't keep you busy. So here, go you know, clean the clams or, you know, something like that. So growing up a little bit in, you know, Philly, New Jersey area, we just did a New Jersey episode not too long ago for one of the podcasts that we do. Have you ever had the chance to have the New Jersey Philly cheesesteak? The New Jersey version? Yeah. It's like uh, on like a Kaiser roll and it's like a poppy seed, I think. But yeah, they do it a little different. No, I've actually never even heard of that. Oh, Okay. Yeah, we just kind of learned about it, too. I'm familiar with, obviously, the regular cheesesteak and then the the roast pork sandwich that they have in Philly. And then South Jersey has the the pork roll sandwich like for breakfast, which is great. But yeah, I had no idea about uh, that other one. With the Philly cheesesteaks, it's like a cheese sauce, right? Is it like a cheese whiz or what's... Uh, it depends. It depends on where you go. Some places do provolone, which sucks. If you like the provolone, you're wrong. And then the other places all use cheese whiz, like, you know, straight out of a can. And then some places will use American cheese, which is essentially the same thing as cheese whiz. But yeah, the it, there's a lot of Italian influence down there, obviously. So I think that's where like the provolone came from. It's just not a good cheese for that job. I don't mind the provolone, but I've also never had the authentic Philly cheese from one of the famous places. Like, I, I mean, I haven't been to Philly yet, so. when that's why you don't mind the provolone, because you never had <laughs> But maybe if, once you have the legit version, it's like, oh, okay, this is completely different. Yeah, I think it's night and day. Cause, I mean, provolone's not as salty. Uh, it's just stretchy, which is great on a pizza. You know, if you grew up in Philly, how did you wind up in Columbus? Um, I moved here. I, well, I moved to Ohio in 2005. Uh, my mom came here for work. I finished high school, uh, up in the Youngstown area in Canfield. Uh, Youngstown sucks. So I was like, I gotta get the hell out of here. Uh, I really wanted to go to CIA in New York, but, uh, we couldn't afford it. Um, so I was just like, well, uh, I guess I'll go to culinary school somewhere. And I looked at, um, I forget what it's called now. Uh, the one in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's gone now. Anyway, I looked at that one. I, went, I ended up going to the Bradford here in uh, Columbus. And that one, it was just more convenient. It was closer. 
So it was like a two and a half hour drive versus, you know, however far Pittsburgh was like three and a half. Um, and I was like, well, I'll just move to Columbus. So uh, I got to Columbus in like 2008. Yeah, I've been here ever since. Yeah, I think the the Pittsburgh one, I think it was like a Le Cordon Blue was kind of the big one, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Going to the Bradford, which is now closed. Was there a reason you chose the Bradford over like Columbus State? Uh, I actually at the time didn't know Columbus State had a uh, culinary program. Like, I think when I looked into it, I like saw that there was like hospitality, hospitality management or something, and I was just like, hmm. So I probably just like overlooked it because I probably would have just went to Columbus State. Yeah, because I hated the Bradford. Yeah, with the Bradford, I mean, it's closed now, but like, did you think it was going to be more of like learning? I don't know how to run a kitchen or was it just really basic like recipe stuff that you're like, I already know this. Yeah. So I, at that point I had already like worked at like diners, little mom and pop, like Italian restaurants and that kind of thing. And when I got there, it, they kind of just like push kids through, like no matter what, like if you start, as long as you show up, you're graduating. I was like, well, this is fucking stupid. I had already been working. So I knew some basic stuff and everyone was like constantly telling me like you know like oh it's what what you put in is what you get out and i'm like well i put 40 grand in and i'm not getting any of that back so i mean the best thing i got from it was definitely just like professional connections and networking like when i first moved to columbus i i lived pretty close to easton so i applied at ev- almost every restaurant in easton just because i was like it's close i need to get a job i went to one place and they're like are you in school and i'm like uh, no, not right now, but I'm starting, you know, Bradford in a couple months. And they literally told me like, oh, well, we normally don't hire people that go there. And I was just like, what? And he's like, yeah, we just have bad track record with students from there. I was like, all right, well, how about I start? And then once I start going to school, if I start fucking up, you can get rid of me. So they hired me, but, and I was there for a little over a year. Is that place still around? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, McCormick and Schmick's. They were the first, yeah, they were the first place to call me when I moved down here. So I was just like, cool, I'll work there. It was good, but it was, you know, not what I wanted to do forever. It was more just like a, you know, I need to make money. I need to pay rent, that kind of thing. Were you just cooking on the line there, essentially? Uh, Yeah, I started on pantry, which their pantry station was like uh, all the cold stuff, salads, plus desserts, and then... Also the raw like oyster station. So we would like build the oyster towers and shellfish towers and that kind of thing. Uh, and then I eventually moved over to the fry and grill station. Um, but I ended up leaving after that. So with your experience in culinary school, if somebody was to ask you like, hey, I you know, want to do this professionally, what do you think about culinary school? What would you say? Would you recommend it or would you recommend like? No, absolutely not. Like I said, I got good professional networking and contacts out of it, but not as many as I would like, I guess. Like you learn certain things, sure. Like I know how to make, you know, terrines, but you know what I've never made at any of the restaurants I've worked at is like an old fashioned French terrine. Now, not saying that there's not places that you can learn how to do that, but it's like one of those things where you can, anything you want to learn, you can learn by working somewhere or just like reading about it. Obviously, hands-on experience is always better, but yeah, if I, if I was super interested in, you know, classic French cuisine in Columbus, I probably would have tried working at the refectory and then I would have 
been exposed to a lot of that stuff there. And, you know, that's just like one example. My class, like half the class was like old divorced housewives that were like, I don't know what to do with my alimony money. So I'm going to go to culinary school. And I'm like, this is unreal. I mean, you graduated culinary school and then then what was next after that? So you're at McCorvick and Schmitz for a little bit, going to culinary school. Yeah. So I actually took a year off. I dropped out in the middle because my car was totaled and I like tried going to class the next day and I was like, oh, I don't have any way of getting there. So I just like called and I was like, yeah, I'm dropping out. And then eventually they were like, well, you got to pay your loans. And I'm like, all right, I'll go back. But yeah. So after that, I ended up the chef that was at McCormick Schmicks at one point worked for Elena at Elena's and he suggested I go work there because she would whip me into shape kind of thing. So I very, very briefly uh, worked for her, which was great. It was a good learning experience, uh, very eye-opening. And then I think after that... Because at some point you wind up at the Hilton, right? Or working... Yeah, that was after Elena's. I eventually ended up at Hubbard Grill and was there... I don't even know how long. I was there for a little bit and they were opening their other restaurant, Mezzo, in Dublin. And they were like, hey do you want to go work there? And I'm like, uh, yeah, give me more money and I'll go. And they did. So I helped open that. Um, and that place was an absolute dumpster fire. Uh, so after that, I assumed, like almost immediately as I got there, I tried looking for somewhere else. Um, and then I ended up at M, Cameron Mitchell's M, which is now officially closed. Um, I was at M for about a year. And then I left M to go to the Hilton where I was for, I think, three years. So with that restaurant, the sister restaurant to Hubbard Grill, was it just mismanagement, like right from the get-go? Like as soon as you walked in, you were just like, oh, you guys don't know what you're doing kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was like always busy with like the Dublin crowd. They had like some promotion that was like kids eat free on Tuesdays or something. And so like every family in Dublin's like, well... We're going to this Italian place tonight. But then it would only be like me and both the other sous chefs on the line. And we're just get we get like destroyed every single night. And I was just like, this sucks. Ownership is was just I didn't have to deal with them too much, but from what everyone around me felt about them, I was just like, Yeah, this isn't what I want to do. Going to M, what was that? I mean, M's now closed. They decided not to reopen it after renovating part of it because of COVID or, you know, staffing issues. And who knows really exactly the the full truth as to why they decided to fully close it, but maybe it was something to do with the lease. I don't know. But being there, you know, at one point, I think it was just that and the refectory were the only two like five-star restaurants. What was that kind of like? Was that more kind of what you were looking to do? Kind of like the fine dining type elevated cuisine? Yeah, absolutely. I've always been super competitive. So I always wanted to be better than everyone else or at least, uh, and not at everything. Just like if I'm going to cook something, I'm, I want to cook it better than you. And I still to this day feel that way about cooking. But yeah, so it was, it was good because it was definitely a step in that, that direction. They were the first place I ever really worked that had like you know, career servers that like knew what the hell they were talking about with wine. And it just felt like everyone there actually gave a shit about what they were doing. And I started over there on 
pantry, which theirs was, again, cold salads and appetizers, the dessert, which all their desserts were from scratch. So I got to prep a lot of that stuff too. Um, And then also a sushi station. So I was like, oh, this is cool. I get to learn, you know, even more stuff. It was good. But when the Hilton opened, it was just seemed like it was like a, like, all right, here's a place where I can grow. You know, it's a worldwide company and that kind of thing. So with the Hilton, did you wind up just at the downtown property or were you at, you know, all their properties around the city just moving around or? No, just the downtown. I helped open it. So it was like gallery was the restaurant was, you know, my main focus, not necessarily the banquets or anything like that. And yeah, I did that for, like I said, I think it was two and a half, three years. Um, uh, And it was a great time. Do you think working for those two, three years in the hotel environment, did that help you accelerate to the level that you wanted to be at faster instead of, you know, bouncing around to two or three different restaurants during that time? Yeah, just because at a hotel, you get to see way more different things. Like there's just like so many strange kind of instances that would happen. Some 17 year old kid that was like, about to get picked up by like some famous soccer club in Europe. And he was like training with the crew and he was, he was uh, from Africa somewhere and he was staying with us for like a month. So it was just like, all right, figure out how to cook, you know, African food now. So we had like something like that. Then there was, you know, the Arnold happened. So it was like, get to see, you know, these people that are like, I want 10 egg whites scrambled for breakfast. And it's like, what the hell? Is going on right now uh or they like people like ordering steamed sweet potatoes by the 100 gram increments so we did like weird stuff like that but then also bill glover was very uh open to like wanting to do you know any and everything we could kind of think of within reason so it was a good like nurturing experience to uh you know look up new stuff learn about it try it and i've always been someone who likes to like test new stuff. Like I read a lot. I have more cookbooks than almost anyone I know. Uh, I think Josh Dalton's the only person I know that has more cookbooks than me. But yeah, I like, I read all of them. And then it's weird. I have really good memory with like that stuff, but then I can't remember like where I put my phone sometimes. So. So with that situation where you had to learn African cuisine, how did you go about, like, did you just start, go to the library and look up, like, different cookbooks or something like that? Or how did you kind of figure that out? Uh, yeah, I kind of just, like, looked up, um, he, he actually gave us a list of, like, these are, like, my favorite dishes. And then we kind of, like, looked up how to make them. And I, I feel bad because we, so we couldn't figure out exactly how to make uh, the, it's called fufu, which is, like, a like a pounded yam or I think cassava root or something. It's kind of like this paste stuff. And every time we tried to make it, it just never came out right. But like one of the things was uh, called pepper stew and it was like braised um, lamb or goat in, you know, like a tomato and like pepper broth kind of thing. And it was delicious. But I think we were, we seasoned everything kind of to our American palates and then he would try it and he's just like, every time he's just like, yeah, it's, it's good, but it's not right. And I think that might be like a, you know, it's got to be a seasoning thing, like a salt amount, because I feel like Americans have the highest salt palate, you know, worldwide. So we're like, oh, this is great. And then he's like, 
this is poison or, you know, I don't know, like, I don't know what he thought, but, but yeah, so we like looked that up. There was this, uh, something else called, uh, I think a goosey stew, which is like a pumpkin or a gourd seed stew with like spinach. Uh, and everything we made, I was just like, wow, this is really good. So that was just a, a cool little experience from over there. So after about like three years, you wind up moving on from the Hilton. I think next was Wolfsbridge, right? Uh, actually in between there, I went to Forno. I had some friends that worked there and they're like, Hey, we really need a sous chef. Like you should, you should totally do it. And I was like, I'm super, uh, like I overthink and overanalyze everything all the time. So I was like, I don't know, like before I make any decision like that, I like think of every possible outcome. And like the moment I hit something that I'm like, nah, this doesn't sound like a good idea. I just say no, but they like kept egging me on. So I just like, all right, fuck it. I'll do it. Uh, it was my first sous chef job. You know, it was good while it lasted, but uh, I'm glad it's over. And then, yeah, after that, I went is when I went to Wolf's Ridge. So with Forno, was that your first experience to managing people with the sous chef position? Yeah. I Right before I left the Hilton, I was kitchen supervisor. All that really meant was write a recap at the end of the night and when no other managers are there, I'm in charge. I had no real like managerial duties other than like, hey, we got really busy or it was slow kind of kind of thing. So, but yeah, it was my first uh, ex- experience with that. I am a firm believer that any experience is still good experience, whether, you know, it was bad or not. Like you just learn from it no matter what it was. Um, and I still talk to a lot of the, I still have a ton of friends that work for them. Um both in the kitchen and the front. Yeah, definitely not a company for me. Was it just their management style or was it the cuisine that was just kind of didn't fit with what you wanted? Uh, it was it was everything. Like ex-nightclub owners, not into that whole thing. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, they don't care about the food. The food is just an amenity for their drink sales. So, and I get it. Like if that's how you want to make your money, you know, go for it. And the more power to you. But it was just, yeah, just not a good environment. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what the short north has, I feel like, become over the past like couple of years. I mean, there's a bunch of different establishments down to there that they do food, but they're not, it's not food focused. It's definitely about the nightclub type atmosphere more than probably the quality of food being put out on the menu and everything like that. So, I mean, it definitely seems to be popping up more and more, like you said. And, and also, yeah, I mean, alcohol is way more profitable than food. Yeah, you can have, you know, 400% alcohol costs or 30% food costs. So it's like, take the alcohol. So then after Forno, you wind up at Wolf's Ridge, right? So, and I think you wind up doing like pastry there, which, why did you want to do that? So when I started there, I was just uh, on the line on saute. Prior to that, when I was at the Hilton, there was a point where we had no pastry chef. And I kind of was like, well, I'll do it. And they were like, are you sure? And so I would come in and prep all that stuff on top of, uh, you know, working the line. And I think I had a brief uh, period of time where I was like the, you know, impromptu pastry chef there, but only for the restaurant. Like they, I didn't do any of the banquet desserts kind of stuff. I think the food and technique from the people that do both is like, it's just a great upper hand. Like Alex Stupak was an amazing and is an amazing pastry chef. 
And then now he has all his uh, Mexican places in New York. And you can still see like heavy, you know, refined pastry technique in a place that's serving tacos. And it's, I think it's awesome. So I just wanted to like learn how to do both. Um, but yeah, so at Wolf's Ridge, we didn't, we didn't have a pastry chef at the time. And we kind of just made who, whoever, like the chefs, Seth and Andy and Chris, they would kind of just like split up the duties of making all the dessert stuff. I quickly was like, all right, I want more responsibility. Like I want to do more. And it took a little bit of like convincing. And then eventually they were like, all right, we'll make you the pastry chef. I'm like, cool. So I did that. I would say for at least half the time I was there, I was there for three, I think like a week shy of three years. How did you wind up getting in at Wolf's Riz? Did you just go and apply like they needed somebody or did you know somebody through a connection? Um, I just I applied on Craigslist and I got a call back from Seth like the next day. And he's like, is this application real? And I was like, uh, yeah. And I told him, you know, my situation after leaving Forno. And he's like, well, you're, you know, you're hired if you want it, which was obviously great. I knew two people that worked there, but I didn't know that they actually worked there. Like once I started, I was like, oh, no shit, you work here. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, I totally forgot that you worked here kind of thing. Wolf's Ridge is kind of a, I, don't know, I guess you could call it a, almost in a way like a local darling of a restaurant kind of thing. I, th- I just feel like there's a lot of people that that are really supportive uh, of the restaurant uh, itself. But I mean, you were there for three years. So I think probably one of those years you were there, it was named, you know, best restaurant by Columbus Monthly, I, I think in there probably, right? You know, what was that like? Did that change anything since you are, you know, a competitive person was that you know something that you were super proud of or was it something that just kind of the restaurant as a whole was like that's great but how did that kind of when that came out how did that change anything or if it did uh i mean yeah every you know the whole staff were you know proud of it obviously i think i think it was like the first year i was there we were like number three or four and then the second year was number one and then the third year i think we were at two or three and then me being you know, who I am. I was like, you guys look like I started here and we were like fourth and then my second year and now we're number one. And everyone's like, get the fuck out of here. Like that's, it's not because of you. And I was like, well, I don't know. It seems like a coincidence. Not, you know, not, I was just, you know, shit talking, but uh, yeah, we were obviously all super proud, but we, Seth and the other Sue's are all very, uh, they're not going to let something like get to their head kind of thing. And they're just like, yeah, we're those guys all, bust their ass, work hard. And it's just like one of those, like, it's good to get some, you know, some props, some recognition when you, you know, do that kind of stuff. Picking up the pastry side of thing too. How did, did you just teach yourself through cookbooks and reading and stuff? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I, um, yeah, I would see like something either on Instagram or in a book. And I'm just like, that just looks so fucking cool. Like that's one of the things with pastry that I really like is, like the precision that you see in, you know, high-end like Michelin star desserts that it's just like, everything is like perfect, especially in the books. Obviously they want them to be immaculate, but it's like, everything is perfect where you could get a savory dish and it's, you know, more natural. So it's like, not all the plates are going to look identical just because, you know, the mushrooms are different shaped or, you know, 
you know, not all pieces of meat are the exact same kind of thing, but like in the pastry world, it's like everything is a perfect two by four centimeter rectangle. I just love that like preciseness of it. Um, but yeah, it was just like the one good thing with Woolstridge is it's, it's a brewery. So when people go there, a lot of times they expect a burger and wings and the tap room has that for those those people but then the main dining room has you know steaks and like more upscale food and that kind of thing so i could kind of like blend both of those worlds together for pastry like i think one of the best ones we had on the menu at one point was just like a brownie uh, and i think it's a great brownie recipe but it was like buckeye flavors but there was like stout in the brownie and you know, that kind of thing. People went nuts for it. Uh, and it's like, all right, well, how do I make this not just like a square brownie with a scoop of ice cream on top, you know, that you would get at like a Denny's. So we we changed like how we played it up. And once you're in that brewery and you kind of like, you see this thing and you're like, oh, it's a brownie. So they're ex- they're expecting, you know, that. And then when they get it, it's the same thing, but, you know, different shapes. Just that alone kind of gives people... A little bit of that, like, oh, wow, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, they're expecting, like, this basic kind of plating. Yeah, exactly. They, it's like, so I always try to manipulate something into the unexpected, but it's still, like, very nostalgic. Yeah, so it's different, but you still understand what it is as soon as you see it kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not putting, you know, some crazy, fancy chocolate tort on there, but everyone, if I did, people would probably hesitate to order it. And then once they had it, they'd be like, oh, this is just chocolate cake. But yeah, it's kind of the same thing over there. It was, it was just like a, a good way to incorporate kind of those like food memories that a lot of people have about certain things into a menu over there. So you were there for like three years and then wound up leaving. Was it because of the pandemic or was it just time for a new challenge for you? Or Yeah, it was, I was, like I said, I was there for like, three years and I was like kind of getting bored. I actually get bored really, really fast. And the one really good thing for me about Wolfridge was they changed their menu every quarter. So like every three months. And I was like, oh, thank God, because I get, I get bored really fast. And then once I get bored, then, you know, I'm just like, you know, you start losing interest and whatever. But yeah, it was just like kind of my time. Uh, a friend of mine actually approached me and was like, Hey, you know, like how's work been blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Oh, it's good. You know? And he's like, well, I got it. He's like, I, I just took a new job and he was like telling me about it. And he's basically like scouting me out to see if I would go with him where he was going, which was Rue. And yeah, it was just one of those things where I like, didn't really see any growth potential in like the near future of like one year. Obviously, I think they just like posted something this week about them adding another location kind of thing. I don't know if you saw that. Who, Wolfsridge or Rue? Uh, Wolfsridge, that school thing. Um, So that's like, that's awesome for them. I remember them talking about stuff like that when I was there, but I was just like, oh, I don't know if that's, you know, we'll, you know, we'll see if that ever, you know, happens. My buddy, his name's uh, Jaime. He's, I believe, at La Tavola. He was going to go be the Sioux at Rue, and he was just like, you should totally come. We need someone to do pastry. They still need a pastry chef. And I was like, "Uh, dude, I don't know anything about Indian food. 
I was like, I don't know anything about this chef. Like he, he has other restaurants. Like there's, he's not going to be there all the time, you know, but I ended up saying, fuck it and going, I'm really glad I did. It was a really good learning experience. I learned a lot of, you know, new technique, a lot about Indian food in general. That was very uh, short-lived with COVID. Yeah, it's a weird concept, too, with Rue, because the the main guy who started all the Rues, he's, like, I think maybe the only time he's even been here is when it first opened. Sakar, Sujan Sakar, I think is his name. So he's mainly over, like, they have a location in, like, San Francisco and Chicago and uh, I think New Delhi, too, and maybe one in, like, Palo Alto or something. This one is like a weird kind of, he's he's not super involved with it. And you can tell if you follow the Instagram from any of the others, if you look and compare, like those are all a bit more, I feel like elevated from at least a plating standpoint than the one here in Columbus's. Not to say that the, the food in the one here in Columbus isn't good or anything like that. It's just, it's a, they're kind of two completely different things, just sharing almost the same name kind of thing from, from what I've been able to to gather. Yeah, I I think that's that's pretty accurate just from being on the inside. It definitely started out as like a clone of San Francisco. And the same thing happened with the Chicago one. Chicago was like, "All right, well, we're going to take San Francisco, pick it up and drop it here." And then but you know, different demographics and that kind of thing, so like quickly you have to adjust to what's around you. But yeah, I I definitely got that vibe was like the, oh, you guys are kind of just like, you know, I hate to say it, but you guys are kind of just like a paycheck for this guy. Like you guys wanted this restaurant, like the ownership. And he's like, all right, well, I'll let you do it. I'll let you use my name and my recipes kind of thing. But it's very hands-off. He's He's been there more than that, but it's, I think in a couple months that I was there before COVID, he was there probably two or three times. And it was almost always in just like a, meeting capacity not like see what everybody's doing in the kitchen kind of thing yeah i mean he would it was like i'm here to talk to the owners and then after that i'll hang out in the kitchen but his food is great like at least when i was there i thought everything was absolutely delicious and i've been back i still go there to eat um uh, still talk to people from there there's definitely like dishes that were there on the menu when I worked there that are plated a lot more simply now than they were then. But I don't know if that's a COVID staffing thing or a train, you know, I don't know what the the reasoning behind is. Yeah, I haven't been there in a couple months. But yeah, I mean, I've always had good food there. With after Rue, then you kind of wind up at Veritas once they're reopening. They were shut down for, I think, March through pretty much August. They reopened in August of 2020. So how did you kind of wind up joining Veritas? How did that all come together? That is a long story. I think I have applied to Veritas like five or six times when they first moved downtown and like no callback, nothing. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? They would like post like, we're opening for lunch. We were looking for AM sous chef. And I'm like, cool, this will be my foot in the door. And, you know, I didn't hear anything back. And then I would see uh, other chefs that they would hire. And I'm like, dude, that dude fucking sucks. Like, why the hell? And then now working there, everyone feels the same way about certain people. Uh, But yeah, so like even when I was at Wolf's Ridge, just like uh, I've I've done a couple of events at the Hilton and Josh was there, uh, like those James Beard dinners. And he 
you know, is always in the top. I think he's literally always been number one, I think, except like one or two years. So I was just like, well, he's obviously the best. Like, I want to go work for him. And him and Bill Glover are friends. So even Glover was like telling me like, yeah, you should. He's like, you should try to get in with him and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And so I applied in February or March. And then I find he called me and was like, yeah, come in for an interview. We interviewed. My first day was supposed to be, I think, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, which is like two days after restaurants closed. And he like calls me the day before. He's like, hey, so sure you saw the news. You still have a job. I just don't know when. And I'm like, all right, cool. (laughs) So then I was freaking out. I've never been on unemployment before. So I was like, holy shit, am I not going to have unemployment? Because like I technically didn't, I was not employed when I became COVID furloughed or, you know what I mean? Like I, I was freaking out and he's like, that's not how it works. You'll be fine. And then, you know, dealt with quarantine. And I mean, but me and him kind of talked the whole, the whole way through, like once every week or once every two weeks, just about like, this is the kind of menu where it was like the Mexican supper club. He's like, I'm thinking about this. He's like, so, you know, think about Mexican stuff. And uh, he knew I had pastry background. So he was like, I'm just going to let you do that end. And then obviously we'll collaborate on savory stuff as well. Um, but yeah, so that's how I, I guess my official start date's like August. So yeah, almost a year, but I was like, I don't know about you. I was doing work in the middle of quarantine. So do you ever tease Dalton about? Oh, 100%. I'm a, what I would call a button pusher. 100% of the time. So like, I will tell him stories about Wolfridge and he'll get all like riled up. And then I'm just like, yeah, dude, like the reason you didn't come in first was because I was over at Wolfridge that year. And he's just like, no fucking chance. And so I, I bring it up all the time. And then now that I'm in kind of a, a position that's like, I'm expected to, to maintain that number one he's like you don't want to be the one in charge if we get number two and i was like yeah that's true but it's good it's uh he's easily i'm sure a ton of people would say they hate him or they don't like working with him or he's an asshole but there's easily just as many people that would say that about me but i get along with them great we're both uh like when i try to do something i want to like like i said i want to do it better than anyone else He's also very much like that. So it it's like almost like competitive with each other where like I've always kind of been the smartest person in the room as far as food goes. And I'm usually not afraid to let people know that kind of thing. Um, just as far as like restaurant knowledge or famous chefs, techniques, whatever the case may be. And he's the same way. So because of that, now it's just like it's a good like it just makes i feel like both of us want to be better because it's like oh there's an actual challenge now you have something that you can kind of measure yourself against, essentially right yeah yeah who do you think if you ever did it maybe you have but like cook the same dish like who do you think wins like you're both really competitive so like take it out of you know top chef or some culinary show or whatever but just you know you guys both got to cook the same thing and you know you have like 30 minutes or whatever um it depends i it, i guess it depends on the dish and the other circumstances i feel like if there's a time constraint 
I would win because I just feel like he might not. I don't even know. That's weird. But there's definitely things that I've made that he's like, this is the best thing or this is like the best version of this I've ever had and kind of as vice versa with me to him. So I think it really depends on what it is. Like if you were like, hey, you have 24 hours to make this, whatever it might be. And it it would be one of those things where like he doesn't care how much money he has to spend to win. And I also am that way. He just has more money. So like, and you can see that in a lot of his food at the restaurant or anytime he does an event, it's always, he doesn't spare any expense, which is like, I feel like how you should be. Like if you do a collaborative event, it's like, why wouldn't you want to be the best person there? Like, can you imagine if everyone there was trying to be the best? It would be, it would just make everything even better. It's it's not toxic. It's, it just, you know, if everyone's trying really hard, it'll only only get better. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say I would win just because we're talking about me. So, um, but yeah, I, it really, I guess it would depend on what it is. Like if it's a dessert, hands down, I'm winning because he doesn't care about desserts. Like he just, he doesn't know too much about them. Like he knows some stuff, but yeah, I'm, I'm winning that. No problem. Other stuff I'd say 50, 50 chance. Yeah, I mean, like Veritas, you know, it seems like a very creative environment, definitely collaboration too as well. It definitely, at least from the outside, seems like everybody has a voice and everybody gives a shit about what's going on the plate and, and all that. With, you know, even with changing all that stuff, you know, so much, like you guys change the menu pretty much weekly or bi-weekly you know, rotating dishes in and out. But based on your experience, like, do you think too many restaurants in Columbus play it safe with kind of almost giving the guests what they want instead of what they need, like instead of pushing them to discover new things? Because I would say Veritas is probably one of the few places that actually does that. For the French supper club menu, like you guys had escargot on there. Like nobody else in Columbus is going to do that, but maybe more, I think more places should. I think just there's a lot of places that kind of play it safe. Yeah, I think that kind of falls in with like the restaurant is like, what, what's the concept? Because like escargot, like the only places, like when I was at the Hilton at gallery, we had escargot on the menu um, when it first opened. And I think it, it was there for a couple menus and like different variations. And we did it for the French supper club, but it's like, would Veritas do it if there wasn't that theme of a, of French? It's like the probability is a lot lower. So it's like you would expect the refectory to have it or something like that. But it's just like how many other like French restaurants are there in Columbus? You know what I mean? So it's it's that. And I think part of that is also a lot of restaurants like concepts just open with instead of like we're going to focus classic French cuisine where it's like, all right, we're going to focus on getting people in the door. And, you know, it, the restaurant business is tough, so. Uh, especially even now. So it's definitely like what's more popular. Like people keep opening these shitty taco places and it's just like, yeah, tacos are fucking good, but we don't need like, unless they're all little like taco trucks with like Mexican people working there. I don't need white boy tacos at four different places on high street. So you are not in the line for the Del Taco when it opened, I take it. Uh, I've never had it. I'd, I'd give it a shot, but I, I don't like Taco Bell. Uh, so, I mean, I'll definitely give it a shot, see what it's all about, but 
Yeah, no, I've never had it either. I mean, I yeah, I got to imagine it's something, you know, it's a chain. It's a taco chain, so I got to imagine it's something. It can't be. Yeah, it can't It can't be. It's just like a nostalgia thing. Like everyone's favorite pizza is the one that you had growing up. And everyone's favorite Chinese restaurant is the one that you had that was close to your house that would deliver. So it's like whatever. But yeah, I, I think that's that's the problem is like no one and, and each person, each chef or whoever makes like the final decisions is like there's different levels so like at one place they might be pushing what they consider pushing the envelope is like serving you know foie gras or liver or sweetbreads or something like that and then the next place over is like doing snake you know each person has like a different like oh this is our weird thing that we're gonna do or like you know pig's head terrine and it's like well that doesn't sound very attractive. So people probably won't order it. And the only people that probably will have either already had it or they're a chef. And unfortunately, you can't make a restaurant catering to chefs because they're always working. Dalton's pretty notorious for saying that, you know, he gets bored pretty quick and you seem to be kind of the same way. So was it really easy to kind of integrate yourself when you started at Veritas or what was kind of the most challenging part of, of getting up to speed there? Yeah, well, the supper club theme in general was just different. Like it's, uh, it was a tasting menu, but then he was like, "I want to change it every week," and I was like, "Okay." So when that's all you do, it's it's pretty easy. Which is what sucks about kind of Columbus is like people don't want the tasting menu experience, but it's like it's just it's literally easier for everyone involved: the staff, the kitchen, the diner. You know. It just it's just better. But for some reason, Ohio and Columbus just isn't people are still used to paying, you know, well, I want to buy a twenty dollar appetizer and then a forty dollar entree and then a ten dollar dessert and that's all I want to eat. It's like, well, you could have like twenty other flavors if you had, you know what I mean, like how to taste things. But uh so it was pretty easy to get acclimated to that. He definitely gets bored faster than I do because he wants to change it all the time. And I'm like, I think in an ideal world, you would have the same menu for no more than two months because it takes, I feel like it'll take you about, if you're open five days a week, a week and a half to really figure out exactly how you want everything. And then after that, it's just like, all right, cool. And then by the third week, it's like muscle memory. You know, it's like, it's streamlined but then if you do it too long, I think that's when people start doing shortcuts. The care isn't there as much anymore. They're like, oh, well, I know it only takes me this long to prep this item. So I'm going to put it off. And then it's like you end up putting it off and then, you know, you skip a step or, you, you know, something happens to where it's not as good as it was when you were like in the weeds the first week. To me, like I would change it either every month or every two months and do like just a complete overhaul. Now it could be like, you could have things that are like a template, like, all right, we're going to keep this formatting of this dish and kind of change what goes with it. I personally don't give a shit about local. Like I know everyone's like, oh, these are local tomatoes. Like who, who cares if the tomatoes are in your backyard or from a 200 miles away, it doesn't matter. It matters. What matters is if it's delicious and good. And it's like, imagine like someone's like, oh, this is the best, you know, beef in 50 miles from here. And I'm like, all right, that's cool. 
but is there better beef somewhere else? And it's like, well, our farmers care. I was like, do you think like the farmers a hundred miles away don't care what they're doing? Like, it's just like, it's so arrogant to be like, this jam is from this small farm where they, they really give a shit. And it's just like, you're right. They're the only people in the world that fucking care. It's so stupid. Like seasonality, I think is very important, but locality, I think is the, the dumbest thing for restaurants. That so say you get like tomato seasons coming up. If you can get really good tomatoes and they're local, great. No issue. I'm not saying you got to get tomatoes from California, but it's like if the ones you get from here are covered in like wind scars and your yield is bad and all that, and it's like constantly rough, you know, sizing, like they're not consistent. But then, you know, ones from a little bit farther away are just like more consistent, better and, you know, quality. It's like get the other ones. Like I get the whole like support local businesses, but it's like they, you know, at that point, they're the ones that don't care as much. I'm sure there's more people who believe that than would readily admit it. But yeah, it is an interesting thing where you do get the whole, you know, eat local, support local, all that stuff. And it's just Darwinism's kind of survival of the fittest. And if they don't have the best product, but they're still being supported, then it's like, well, is the food that you're putting out the best that you could actually put out? Yeah, that should be the goal of every restaurant is you're going to put out the best food you possibly could. And if you're going to sell yourself short by getting bad product just because it's closer, who fucking cares? Another way I bring it up is like, if you look at like Marco Pierre White, if you look through any of his old book, he obviously knows how to cook. He, he's like one of the youngest people to get three Michelin stars in Europe, I think. And if you look at his like old book when he had it, like one of his desserts was like a mango tart. It's like, they don't fucking grow mangoes in France or England or I think he was in London, but it's like, they don't have mangoes readily available. So it's like back then having mango was such a luxury item that that definitely played part into him being able to get stars. You know what I mean? But now it's like, I can get anything pretty much at any time because, you know, we have the technology and transportation. So it's like, you have access to everything you could want. And if you're just going to constantly do the local thing, you're doing a disservice for your guests. You know, there's not a whole lot of chefs that really do a transition from, you know, pastry back to the kitchen. I mean, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head is Emma Bankston over at Aquavit, who, you know, she was a pastry chef for a long time and then took over the restaurant. Why is that shift so difficult? Is it just two completely different mentalities and executions and they just don't fit together? And that's why, or like based on your experience, I mean, you know, you've done pastry and and now kind of do both. What is the big difference that just people can't make that transition normally? I think it's definitely like, it depends on where you're at and at what level, but it it's definitely one of those things where it's like uh they can potentially be opposite hours, right? So like that's really like 11 Madison Park pastry chefs probably get there at like 4 or 5 a.m. where the chefs probably come in at nine. I feel like in the pastry chef world, unless you are in charge of a big team, you don't nearly have as much uh, responsibility for like management. Whereas, you know, like the Hilton is a good example. Their pastry team was uh, one pastry chef and one pastry cook, and that's it. So it was just two people. Whereas the banquet line, those two people would do all the desserts for the restaurant and all the banquets. But the banquet line it's, itself was just like 10 cooks and then a banquet sous and a banquet exec. So it's just like, I feel like you can do both 
but it, it depends on the person really at Aquavit, she's, you know, badass. So she can, she can do both. And you can, I feel like you can see in her food, her savory dishes, you can see hints of pastry technique and vice versa, which just like makes it a little bit more unique. But yeah, cause I don't think you necessarily always need a pastry chef somewhere, but you know, knowing like I learned how to do it and you know, that now makes me more valuable next. Like I would be more valuable than a straight up pastry chef, unless it's for a position that was, you know, overseeing a pastry department. Other than that, it's like on paper, I would be the choice because it's like, oh, he can do this and this, or the pastry chef would only be able to do one. Versatility. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. So uh, I don't know, you, you don't see it too much. I think it's just the people that get into pastry, they want it because they like, and pastry a lot of times is like, hurry up and wait. Like you get everything done, and then you wait for it where on the line savory, it's kind of like more on the fly, like active cooking versus downtime cooking. Like there's a lot less letting something set overnight or baking kind of thing. Since you've uh, been at Veritas, I mean, there's been a lot of different menus, uh, Mexican supper club, Italian, French, vegan, Nordic, but you guys did, I think, special menus for New Year's, Valentine's Day, did the birdhouse stuff for a while, bar menu, patio menu. What, out of all of them that you've you know been involved in, which is kind of your favorite, the one that you're most impressed with, and which was, did you find it to be the most difficult? Uh, that's a tough one. I think I was definitely impressed with the vegan one just because uh, me and Josh actually decided to eat vegan for like three weeks just to put us in the mindset, which sucked. I don't know. I think it's refreshing to try vegan food that's not necessarily prepared by vegans. And so that one I think was nice just because I was like, this is going to suck. Like it's not going to be that good. Um, but I think the, the our current, like the Nordic one now, that's a cuisine that I don't know too much about other than reading it. Like I've never eaten it before. Like I understand like basic flavor profiles and that kind of thing, but I've never experienced it. So uh, I, I think that our current one now is my favorite, but there's been like certain dishes on like the French or the Italian or Mexican that I'm just like, oh, this is awesome. Or this one, like, wow, this is a lot of work for a not, that big of a payoff kind of thing. You would you say the vegan ones was also the most difficult? Uh yeah, just well, it it wasn't as difficult in reality, but it was just like one of those like we would make something and it's like every time we made something it's like it's missing something and it's like I feel like the one thing that vegan food is missing is fat because every time you want fat in something it's like and it's vegan it's like oh, olive oil or avocado and that kind of thing. And it's that's not the same as butter or pork fat or something like that. Like it it doesn't have that same savoriness that you know animal fat has. So I think that would be the most difficult because like uh we made something that I think was like uh originally like a mayo-based sauce and you try to you make it without mayo and then so we, I think we did it with cashews. It was like a green goddess type thing. And it was still really good. But like when you eat it, you're just like, oh, it, it doesn't have like that same mouthfeel. Like I feel like a lot of vegan stuff has like that kind of like it washes up 
off of your palate really easy because there's there's not that fat that's in there. So it's like you have this really good cashew puree, but as soon as it hits your palate, it's like goes away and it doesn't kind of sit there long enough for you to really appreciate it. I know what dish you're talking about. Uh, I think the hummus um, was definitely least my favorite of the of those two spreads out of that. But since you've been involved in the Columbus, you know, food scene, how has it changed since you started? Where do you think it's kind of headed? You know, over the next five, ten years, it's changed. In I feel like when I first got down here, Columbus was like almost only chain restaurants. Like I think that's when they had like the Dine Originals. I don't know if they still do that. Like Elena's was around and I think Barcelona and stuff like that. But it's definitely growing now to where you do see more like chef driven restaurants, you know, Veritas, Chapman's, Watershed, Service Bar, that kind of thing. That's good. Like that's like the direction we need to go in. Yeah. Otherwise, it'll just be, you know, more of the same whitewashed shit over and over again. Like, well, I think what's his name? Karen Mitchell's opening another fucking taco place on the short north and it's like why yeah it's supposed to take over where harvey and ed's was i think it's supposed to be like a mexican restaurant or something even the name is a joke on the it being the second concept of that location but yeah it's like there's literally a taco place down the street on the same side and one right across the street from you so it's like oh and then there's condado which is even farther up the street so it's just like why are you doing that and they're going to be busy. You know, that's like, that's the crazy part is like, it's still going to be busy. People are still going to go. So until you can get a lot of places that people go to and they're like, holy shit, this is really good. That cycle is just going to continue. I have to ask, because we both thought this was really hilarious, but with the Nordic menu, the King Crab Instagram post, what inspired that? I was cleaning the crab dish comes off my station. I think crab is the best thing to come out of the ocean. It's probably one of my favorite proteins. And I saw a video of, I don't know who he is because I don't, he's some some white dude from some TV show and he's got like a kind of country-ish Southern accent. And he, it's like a clip of him doing an interview and he says, Lord have mercy, I'm about to bust. And he says it, and I thought it was hilarious. And then I think it was on like TikTok or something that I saw a video of someone at like one of those crab boil type places. And they had like this just massive crab leg and it just like shows them dipping it into the butter. And then it like cuts immediately to him out of context saying that. And I was like, this is fucking hilarious. So I was just cleaning the crab and I found like a... I think it was like seven ounce piece of crab meat with no shell. And I was like, holy shit. And uh, yeah, I just posted it to my story. And yeah, that, that, that was it. I just thought it was funny. What's next for you professionally as a chef? Like, do you want to open a restaurant of your own one day? Or have you seen enough that maybe that's not something that you want to do? But, you know, running a restaurant is something that you want to do. You know, I can understand people having apprehensions with how much goes into back office type side of running a restaurant, the HR, the, you know, P&L, all that stuff. For the longest time, I was like, I got to have my own place. I have to be my own boss. After working in restaurants in the industry long enough, I'm like, it's so much fucking headache that like, I don't want that anymore. Like I would rather work for someone 
and have to answer to like one person than running my own and having to worry about just like the smallest stupid shit. Like I don't, I don't care about that kind of stuff. Like I want to, I want to cook and that's about it. So yeah, I, I used to want to like have my own place or something, but I think anymore, I, I don't, I don't want it. It's too much, too much headache. So we got a few more questions. We ask these to everybody that comes on the podcast. So compare and contrast for everybody listening. Who would you say so far, looking back on your career, was the biggest influence? I would have to say Bill Glover at the Hillen. Uh, I still talk to him all the time, but he definitely provided uh, room for like growth as far as like learning new things. Like he was always like, "Yeah, you should, you know, look it up, see what see what you can do," kind of thing. Um, so I would definitely say him. And then I would have to put Josh as a close second, just because he's also very much like, like if I wanted to try something, he'll buy whatever equipment or ingredient we need just so we can test it, see how it works. And then if it's like, we like it, it's like, all right, now what do we do with it? Um, so yeah, I would have to say Bill and then probably Josh. Yeah. I think Bill's over at uh meet and three with Ray Ray's now. Yeah. He's at Ray Ray's now. Yeah. What's the one item in the kitchen that's not a knife that you can't live without? Probably a either a blender or a spoon, just because I feel like you can anything you need to cook, you can handle it with a spoon. And then a blender gives you a level of refinement for things you want to make like sauces or purees or something like that. What's the one thing in a restaurant that if it breaks, you're not going to try and attempt to fix it yourself? You're calling somebody. Probably just like coolers and stuff like that. I don't know too much about how to fix that kind of thing. So I would say uh, say something like that. But I mean, I'll I'll hit something with a wrench until it works. So I'll try anything once. Uh, what's the one restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't Veritas? So somebody gets uh, delayed at the airport, stuck overnight. Hey, where should I go eat? You guys are closed. You'd point them to this place. Um. I guess it depends on the people and the occasion, but I would probably say... I'd say just grabbing dinner, want good food, doesn't matter what style. Probably like Watershed, Service Bar, Chapman's, if they want to like go and sit down and have dinner somewhere. Because I like the food at all those places. Uh, I like the chefs at all those places. So, Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant that you want to go to but haven't been to. Oh, man. There's so many. In the United States, Vespertine in LA. I want to go there so bad. And then I would say overseas, probably Miritzer in France, just because they got number one and their his food looks insane. Like everything looks perfect. So definitely those two. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I don't even know. I've seen some weird shit. Uh, I think... I don't even know if I can say this. Uh, I have two, just in case the first one is not appropriate. But uh, like I said, I was working at some place not in Columbus. Um, it was a chain, and I only worked on the weekends. And I walk into the walk-in during the shift, and the guy who was like the lead trainer slash like a lifer, older dude that's been there forever, uh, he was taking a piss into a pickle bucket, and. In the walk-in, and I like literally saw it and just turned around and walked right out and just got in my car and left. So I don't know if there was pickles in there. I don't know if it was just a bucket full of piss, but 
I've never been back to said chain, and I don't think I, I ever will. So yeah, I don't if if you're cool with that story, go for it. Uh, if not, I think uh, there was one where a girl I was working with was using one of those like dicer things where you like put vegetables into it and it's got like square blade holes and her thumb slipped into it and she like diced her thumb and it was like the first time i've ever seen like you know how like in the movies like there's like the blood squirts out like with their pulse like that happened and i was just like holy shit uh and she like passed out she was freaking out but yeah (laughs) either one of those two would definitely be my my story uh food or drink guilty pleasure is there one thing that you can't stay away from um i would say and it's not even a guilty pleasure it's just that good uh any chinese i don't know if you've been there uh their twice fried fish is outstanding like one of if not the best dish in all of columbus ohio that's definitely like i ate way too much of that during the COVID quarantine. I would say that. And then like little snacky thing, I would say probably just like salt and vinegar chips or something along that line. Is there a particular like brand? No, I like all of them. Like I like the Lay's ones. I like the kettle ones, pretty much anything salt and vinegar. I like like the salt and vinegar almonds are really good. Uh, Sour candy also. Seems to be a common theme for, for chefs. When I ask that question is salt and vinegar and sour. I don't know if it's just, they don't, it's an acid thing. Chefs chefs usually like high acid. What's the favorite dish, favorite thing you've cooked? You know, looking back on your career, cooked, created, that kind of points to the moment where you're like, this is when, like, I knew I could do this professionally. Oh, I have, I have no idea. I don't know if I have had a moment like that. Is there a dish that you're most proud of that you're like, I can't believe I pulled that off or? Not really. I think... The first thing that came to mind, even though it doesn't really fit, was was it was a dessert. It was before I did any pastry stuff, but it was peanut butter and jelly, which is I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So I made like or I tried to make like a fancy version of peanut butter and jelly. And it's when I was working at M. So it was like 10 years ago. And I just remember trying to put like as many different components as I could think of because, you know, I was younger. So I was just like more and more and more like it needs 10 different types of peanut component and something stupid like that. And then I remember being like torn. I'm like, oh my God, do I do strawberry or grape? I was like, all right, well, what if I do just mixed berries? Uh, so that was like definitely one of the first dishes that I like tried to kind of conceptualize from start to finish. And I've made it two or three times and it's changed almost every time I like do it. But I would have to say that that was just like one of the first things like for me, that's a huge nostalgia thing. Um, and I think, like I said, I think peanut butter jelly is delicious. Yeah, that totally fits. Uh, and the last question, you know, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. So if you are, is there a moment scene episode that stands out to the most? Or if you aren't, is there somebody that you did kind of gravitate towards, you know, a culinary personality or travel host or anything that was kind of like your favorite? Uh, I am a Bourdain fan. Uh, I've got to say my favorite, is I, I saw him when he came to town to the Palisader. When he's doing that speaking tour thing? Yeah. So I, I went to that, which I thought was really cool, even though it was kind of like a stand-up comedy type situation. Um, but it was just really cool. Um, obviously, it was one of his last things that he did uh before he passed um and then i think 
as far as his show, the it's when he went to the French Laundry, and it's like him, Eric Repair, Ruhlman, and I always forget the other guy's name, and they basically all have their own tasting menu. Was it that? Yeah, that was. I think no reservations. I think. Yeah, um, and I just remember. I think it aired originally in like 2002 or three or something like that, and I didn't see it until like 2006 or seven. And I just remember watching it, and that that's kind of how I've watched a lot of his stuff. Was like I would see where they were going, and if it was a country whose cuisine I was interested in at the time, I would watch it. Or if it was a place where he was going, where I knew there was a high-end restaurant, I would watch it just to see like any glimpse of that restaurant or fine dining. And I just remember watching it and it's like, they get four different intermezzos, four different soups, four different, you know, everything. They're just like passing the plates. And I was just like, holy shit, that's fucking to be able to, you know, obviously they knew it was happening, but to be able to pull off at that level of cooking four different menus from the same kitchen on the, on one table is it's a lot. So I I would definitely say that that's definitely one of them. I think another one I have is he went to L2O in Chicago when that was around. And I'm a huge fan of, I think he's like an incredible fucking chef. Like that dude's a beast. Like he can go anywhere, open a restaurant and it's like immediately even though the the Michelin guide won't give it to him, it's already, it's like immediately at a minimum of two star level. Yeah. I think he is, he was at Cezanne for like a year and now he's like retired again back in New York. I did some research on him and like, he has like four different restaurants that he ran that all got like three Michelin stars, like in his career. Like it's crazy. Yeah. And it's just like to be, it's like to be able to do that. It's just like, you know, cause a lot of times people will be like, Oh, it's the team, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you're telling me this dude is finding, it could be the same team every time. I know it's not, but I'm, there's definitely carryover, but it's like to be able to ha- pull that off every time you go somewhere is incredible to me. But yeah, I just like that episode just cause it's like a, a glimpse in at that food, his stuff. But yeah, I would say the, French Laundry one for sure. That was like the first moment that I was just like, that's awesome. Want to be able to do something like that. Where can people find you? Social media, website, that stuff. Plug away. If uh, you come to Veritas, I'm always there. So, And then other than that, I only really do the, the Instagram now that has pretty much, I've kind of trimmed it back to just being more career focused, but that's peanut butter, the number two, and then Paisley on Instagram uh, if you want to see some pictures of food and stuff and the occasional meme. How did you come up with the the username on that one? The peanut butter part I get. It's actually uh, rap lyrics from a song. And I think like most cooks or chefs, anytime your industry is like nodded in some, some other industry, it's like, fuck yeah, you know? And so there's a rap song where they say one the line is peanut butter. He's it's obviously out of context, but he says peanut butter to Paisley, and I love peanut butter. And Paisley's pretty cool too, I guess. So no, I just always wondered that. So yeah, like there's another one, another song I really like that I wanted to use, but it was taken already. And then I was like, I probably shouldn't constantly change my Instagram name at this point. Um, but that one is Ferraris and blue cheese. So. 
So yeah, and you guys are open at Veritas, what, Tuesday through Saturday? Yep, Tuesday through Saturday, dinner only. We also have the Citizens Trust Bar upstairs, which I believe is Wednesday through Saturday um, for some dope cocktails. We do the food for up there as well, a little bar menu. Right now we're doing Nordic with kind of a little bit new menu format at Veritas. Like I said, Josh gets bored pretty quick, so we might be changing that soon into who knows what i think we're out of places that he's traveled to so we're gonna i don't know what's next maybe just kind of like old veritas where it's just like you know whatever we want to cook kind of thing or you could even do like like old veritas like reinventing like just old dishes or something that might be cool too but i don't know maybe that's like kind of too boring i could see that being like a week-long thing and it's like yeah i'm tired of doing that (laughs) yeah he's like ah i've already seen all this there's a patio area too, bar. Oh, yeah, yeah. New patio if you want to come sit out. You can get the bar menu at the bar at Veritas. First come, first serve. So, yeah, check all that stuff out if you haven't been there. If you have, sure, it's something different. But, yeah, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, taking taking some time. Open invitation uh, to anybody who ever comes on the podcast. If they want to come back, change it over menu, just want to talk food, so, saw something in the news, whatever. It doesn't always have to be in an hour either. But Veritas is one of our favorites. So, I mean, we... We pop in there pretty frequently because you guys change over the menu pretty frequently. So, yeah, it's just there's always something different. It's always a great time. So uh, if you haven't been to Veritas, make sure you guys get there. If you have, definitely go back, check it out. Sure, there's something different. But, yeah, we'll be seeing you soon. All right, cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Chef Kamel for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his off day. Again, you can follow him on Instagram at peanutbutter2paisley. Also follow Veritas at Veritas614 on Instagram too as well. Hit up VeritasRestaurant.com. You can also get to them through Talk for reservations. Uh, They're open Tuesdays through Saturdays now. And then you have bars, first come, first serve, kind of walk in and same kind of deal with the patio. But um, otherwise, just make a quick reservation through Talk. You can also get the bar menu, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, up at the Citizens Trust Cocktail Lounge want to go have cocktails and get some bar bites you can do that too up there so check all that stuff out if you haven't been there it's one of our favorite restaurants in columbus to go to we go there you know they change the menu over more frequently than we can go otherwise we would be there like every week so we usually go you know when they change over the menu and there's been a little bit of a couple weeks where they've been doing it you know that way they've kind of maybe refined some of the dishes or something like that if they were tinkering with them or or what have you there's enough of a difference between kind of the concepts and everything is kind of how we do it but we'll be going back there pretty soon since they flipped over the menu once again to kind of whatever they feel like cooking so that's always fun to just kind of whatever they're in the mood for so make sure to check them out if you haven't it's one of the best restaurants in columbus it's been named best restaurant by Columbus Monthly, like, I don't know, four or five times, something like that. Uh, since it's moved downtown, it's been every year, except for I think one when Wolf's Ridge was named the best restaurant. So that whole ranking thing comes out, I think it's like September, October in Columbus Monthly. So that'll be coming up here in, in a couple months. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Spoon Mob One on both those platforms. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com uh, for a bunch of chef profiles, course photos, course breakdowns, wine breakdowns too as well mostly champagne but uh, some other stuff in there too also the website will get you to the podcast uh, chefs and guests restaurant reviews which we've kind of taken a break from we'll probably bring those back in some form kind of working on a different kind of platform maybe to put those on but and then parts now known on wednesdays too as well so 
really Wednesday, Thursday now. Um, and then might, like I said, might be some other stuff in the works that might come up uh, that we'll announce later once it kind of gets finalized and everything too. Been real exciting. Also did some guest spots uh, on some different podcasts. So you can check out the Water Cooler Talk podcast, episode 62. We also went on the Christian Reeve podcast, uh, which is episode 99. Just kind of talked about Spoon Mob, kind of where we're at, how we got here, kind of the whole thing behind it, where we're headed and podcasting and interviewing and stuff like that too as well. So shout out to them for having me on. It's always cool to connect with people who are, you know, seen and are serious about it too as well. But make sure to check out past episodes of Chefs and Guests. We've been releasing them about every week uh, since kind of June, since we came back from vacation. We've just been fortunate enough to be able to have enough people booked kind of in a row to be able to release them once a week. So we got a few more still in the hopper that we've already done and, and working on scheduling some more people. So hopefully we'll be able to keep that going. But uh, feedback's been great. Everybody seems to really enjoy the episode. So that's always awesome to you know get that feedback. And I enjoy doing them. So we're going to keep doing them uh, as long as we can keep getting people booked. People want to do it. So always surprised that you know some of the names that say yes and, and everything. So yeah, make sure to check those out if you haven't. Eventually we'll throw in maybe like an off week, just a break so people can kind of catch up on some of the past episodes or whatnot. But that's it for this week. So we will talk to you guys next week. Appreciate all the support and listening and uh, feel free to write in through the website. Email us, spoonmob at yahoo.com, and and, uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.